0: Amen. Well, as you take your seats, I want to invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to James chapter 3. It's the primary text that we've been in with Harry for the last few weeks, and we're going to start there uh, and then do a survey of Scripture. But um, as we get started, I have a handout for you also this week, so uh, some guys are going to come around and want to make sure you get that into your hand. So you have two assignments. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3, and second of all, I know we're multitasking. It's a lot to ask early on a Sunday morning, but to uh, look at a handout that's coming your way uh, down the aisles. So, good, as that handout makes its way around the room, I want you to read with me James chapter 3, verses one through 12. As we've seen before and we'll see again this morning, James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle or control his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we got our guide our whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. And here's his application. So also is the tongue a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We stop there. James lays out some pretty specific and very practical illustrations as to the power of the tongue to help or to harm. And as we have been looking at this text, Harry certainly aided us to think more deeply and carefully about the use of our tongue and the necessity to bridle it, to exercise control over it because the risks are significant. The impact is major and the implications are great. And so considering the tongue, as James does here for his congregation, it's interesting that he really is talking about one primary idea, and that is someone as a child of God who identifies with God, who is being sanctified to reflect the character of God, struggles. And the biggest if I can put it this way, walking, expression, or even the billboard of our lives is what's communicated by our tongue, and it exposes where there is a disconnect between a desire to be holy and godly and the reality of what's happening in the heart, finding expression in a very public fashion. So the big idea here is you and I who are being perfected in the likeness of Christ have work to do to make sure that the work of the heart and the inward man is such that it shows a life of integrity as expressed by the tongue. And you and I well know the many occasions where a word has escaped our tongues. And you know in that moment, Christ would never have spoken that way. He would not have said that. And for those of us who have a tender heart and a tender conscience, we're convicted by that, and hopefully we quickly respond by acknowledging that, asking forgiveness and pointing to where we fall short and yet affirm our ambition to still grow and be like Christ. For those of us on the receiving end, we know what it's like to be affected by someone's words, who escape from them without consideration, without caution, and produce in our own hearts maybe the unintended hopefully not the intended consequence of what those words do to us. And so this morning what I'd like to do is help us very practically. I'm not so interested in preaching at you or to you. We're going to study just six principles from the Proverbs and talk about their practical application in our lives. And I'm speaking to myself as much as I am to you this morning. Those of you who are sitting next to a spouse or with your kids know that they often are the first to receive uh, this reality. They're the nearest in proximity, they're the dearest to us, and therefore they're the ones that often become the recipients of the expression maybe of a heart and spirit that's not controlled by the spirit himself in that moment, right? Right? So they're probably the ones who hear us apologize the most or should hear us seek forgiveness and restitution. So there's a lot of accountability uh, in the room. It's not your spouse or your kids. It's certainly going to be your friends and others, maybe even co-workers. And because we're concerned about our testimony, particularly before the lost, our speech is paramount to living a life of integrity so that they experience Christ through us, particularly in our spoken words. And hopefully our words are consistent with the message of the gospel uh, and the promises that we claim for ourselves. And so this is a significant area for all of us, myself included. And my intention this morning is to just help us in some very, very practical ways. A couple of weeks ago, my family had a chance to take a road trip uh, for a family reunion up to the Portland, Oregon area where most of my family today lives. I didn't grow up there, but that's where most of them have settled. And uh, trying to think of meaningful ways to engage on the drive up, uh, I did something I'm not usually accustomed to doing, but I gave each of my kids, I texted them and my wife, a free personality test. And uh, I had taken this test a few years ago and um, had read through some of the... uh, observations uh, as far as my personality, and I thought, well, this would be a fun discussion starter among us, so everybody pulled out their phones as we were on the drive and took the test. It only takes about maybe 10 minutes to do it on your phone, and then it calculates the results and comes up with your description of your personality. It's kind of complex, you know, in the sense of being introverted or extroverted, but It's kind of a grid, and you're a combination of all these kinds of things. And probably a lot of you have seen tests like that uh, in years past. And so we went around the car and asked each person to read what the results were for them. And then uh, there was a lot of notes on it and explanation, but there was the um, strengths and weaknesses of that personality. And it was a great exercise. I'd recommend it to you, actually, because as we went around and everybody read, uh, this test had the ability to just spot-on define really kind of the personality or even behavior of each person in my family. And it was fun to acknowledge as you read through the strengths, everybody's like, yep, that's true, that's true, that's true. And the person who was reading that, you know, kind of makes you feel good. These things are the positive strengths about me. And then as they began to read the weaknesses conversation changed a little bit. It's like, "Ah, I don't think so much. I don't really think that's as accurate about me. Yet there was the same affirmation around the car that, no, that's exactly how we experience you. So it was eye-opening for all of us, and it was a great discussion starter. And I made the point, I said, you know, these tests are fun to take, and they may be accurate by way of making observation about behavior. But as a believer, this can never become a rationale or a justification for any behavior that's inconsistent with the character of Christ. So you can't say just because this is my personality, it's excusable that I communicate this way or I respond this way. We all are accountable dealing with the issues of the heart. Turn with me in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read verses 33. And following. It is true, some of us might claim to be a little bit more outgoing or extroverted. Some of us might claim to be quieter and more introverted, or there's other combinations of personalities out there. But it doesn't dismiss any of us from the accountability and responsibility to think of how we communicate in spite of what we may think our natural tendencies are. Matter of fact, even a personality test needs to be taken with caution because there are people who claim to be extroverted, but that being extroverted in the life of the party kind of personality might be driven by a lot of fear of man, a lot of uh, doubts about who God has made them, and, and there can be a measure of compensating for that to try to win people's affection or love. And so... The same could be true of us also, right? If we're quieter and introverted, and people might think that we're just, you know, uh, maybe more thoughtful or whatever it might be, but it may be governed by fear as well. And so we got to dig in and do the heart issues. And I just want to say that as as I, I reference a personality test. It's interesting, it's helpful, but it's not an excuse. It just gives us the ability to understand how we impact people and to maybe sharpen our focus as we begin to take a look at the issues of the heart. And this is what Christ was most concerned about in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read, starting in verse 33, it says, "'Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks.'" The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. I think all of us have tried to memorize and live out and pass on this principle that we find particularly in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christ is saying here, yes, we can observe the nature of your spiritual health by your words. But in this case, he's speaking to an audience that is characterized by legalism, a focus on the external. And what he's saying is you might claim to be followers of God. You might even say righteous things or point to righteous principles or teach things that would be moral and considered righteous. And yet the fact of the matter is your heart is not characterized by the very words that you speak. He also points out here that the opposite is true. If your heart is truly perverse, in the moments of stress and anxiety and and the reality of life, what's going to flow forth is possibly an inconsistency, where you tell God what you think God wants to hear and you tell everybody else what you want them to hear from you. And possibly not what they need to hear as far as spiritual help and encouragement and what is beneficial to them. And so again, we see Christ making the same point that James is, is there's this duality that can be true in our lives. Most evidenced by our speech. And you can try to deal with the externals like the Pharisees did. You can try to curb your behavior, right? You can come up with all kinds of things that attempt to control the external, but Christ said that's not really authentic Christianity. What you want to do is let the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word wash over your heart to transform it so that what flows out to God and to people is consistent with and it's authentic with one who truly knows and loves God. I know that's your ambition this morning. So I'm not here necessarily to confront you. I'm here to help you think about how we do this. A couple nights ago, I was thinking about speaking this morning. I thought, oh, I'm just curious. I'll ask the question at our dinner table of my wife and kids What is your first thought when you think about what the Bible says about speech? And the answers I got were, well, First of all, we're told not to take the Lord's name in vain. That's important, right? That's something. How do we speak about God? How do we use God's name? And certainly the scriptures speak to that. Someone else shared, well, the Bible tells us that we're not to lie or to speak no falsehood. And not only are we to not speak falsehood, we're to speak truth. And the way we speak truth, we're to speak truth in love. And we affirm that that was true as well. We also... Recognized that we're instructed not to grumble or complain. And it would be characterized by that discontent of our circumstances or whatever it is that we might be encountering. Someone else said that we shouldn't be guilty of gossip or speaking of others behind their backs in a way that is detrimental and possibly not even true or factual. And as we were talking, we realized we couldn't possibly exhaust the scriptures just around the dinner table as far as all the ways it addresses our speech. And so I don't have any ambition this morning to give you a full and comprehensive theology on speech and our words. But what I want to do is specifically look at a few Proverbs that will help us this morning consider how we can begin to bridle our tongues in a way that's consistent with what honors the Lord. So, you ready? You have a handout in front of you? I gave that to you because I want you to take these principles home. And what I would say is if we strike a chord anywhere along the way, there's a proverb or text of scripture you might commit to memory as a way to speak to your heart in the course of life that will help then guide your speech. So you might want to commit to memory some of these proverbs that will help you in bridling the tongue. The first Proverbs we read there is found in chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. We read, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But, and here's what the Proverbs do for us, they provide a contrast. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Principle number one that we want to consider is there is power in words too encourage or discourage. As a matter of fact, I've entitled this little study, The Ministry of Encouragement and Edification. Six principles with practical application. The Ministry of Encouragement and Edification. So the principle, there's power in words to encourage or discourage. I don't think I need to tell you that. Has anybody ever been hurt by somebody else's words? certainly. Maybe you've been hurt by the absence of someone's words, someone who didn't take the opportunity to speak truth in a way that helped you in the moment. And so I want us to think not just in the clear statement, but maybe the negative aspect of this as well. The writer of Proverbs makes the point, hatred stirs up strife. You might think about it this way, when there's anger and hatred within the heart, it meets transgression. When there's an offense with blame, certainly anger, and even threats. So when you hear words of blaming and anger and threats, it's an indication that there's some heart work you need to do. Is there hatred in my own heart? What the Bible exposes is something that really goes against the heart and character of God. You don't just sin in speech without, some, without that being informed from a heart level. That was Christ's point. So when you hear those words escape your tongue, if they do, there's an opportunity for what? Reflection, consideration. And it's not just a quick I'm sorry. It's why did I respond to that person in that fashion? What is it in our relationship that has developed even into a seed of bitterness in my own heart that would cause me to respond in that way. And until you go back and do the hard work of considering why you think about that person that way, what it is that has occurred maybe uh, in times past that you've held on to or kept account of that causes you in a, and to be triggered to respond in such a way that stirs up strife. The contrast he makes then is, but love, not hate, but love in the heart, covers all transgressions. And here is the contrast for us that that offense that occurs between us is not met with blaming and threats and an angry response. It's met instead with what? With grace. With grace. And I know for me, if I don't live daily aware of my own dependence upon God for his forgiveness and the demonstration of his grace towards me who offends him and violates him and sins against him, then I'm not prepared then to respond to somebody else in like fashion. And so for me, the hard work has to do of applying the gospel to my life each day, letting it soak into my soul Take root in my heart, let it govern my thinking, so that in the moment where someone who offends me or sins against me, I have an opportunity to have my response framed by the truth of what God's done for me. Again, you know this. I don't think I'm telling you anything new. I'm just trying to make it clear and practical for you what it looks like. So there's power in words to either encourage or to discourage. That's the term I'm using here. This morning. We're both we're probably guilty of both, aren't we, at certain times? And as we are, we recognize Matthew chapter twelve and James three comes to bear. Keep in mind James was a pastor who loved his flock. He pastored the church at Jerusalem, and through his letter he is aiding them and helping them, as Harry's emphasized, to live out an authentic Christian life. And because he loves them, he's going to speak truth to them in a way that helps them to see honestly where they need to grow. The second proverb we can look at this morning is also found in Proverbs 10, just a verse later, where we read, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. The principle here is there's power in words to help others live out truth or to live out truth-based lives. And the word discerning here, if you study it throughout Scripture and the way I believe it's used here, means to see through a circumstance or to see through somebody else's behavior or even see through somebody else's words to make a determination of fact. And what this means is we have to learn to not react to people, but to respond to people. If you just react to what's said to you all the time, you're not taking time to discern what might be behind the words of the person. Maybe they respond in a harsh way to you, and you can just react in kind, can't you? Give it right back to them. And some of us, that's our sinful tendency, isn't it? Instead of asking the question and having the maturity, why are they speaking in this way? What's going on in their heart, or at least going on in their life? Are they under stress? Uh, Is there anxiety in their life? Is there something that would cause me to temper my reaction and to think about a response then where I can speak truth to help them apply that so they walk in wisdom? They live out the wisdom of truth in their life. An angry or or like reaction isn't going to help them, is it? It's going to compound their situation. But if we can absorb that, sometimes you just have to be a good shock absorber as a Christian. Right? Plant your feet, take it, and then respond, looking through or past the immediate words and behavior to think what is best for them, to aid them in living a wise life. And of course, a word of truth spoken with gentleness or kindness can pierce through their anger, their anxiety, whatever it is that might be driving them, even in the, in the flesh, and help them move past that to anchor again in what they know to be the truth. What a gift. Do you have somebody in your life who's like that? Especially if you're somebody who's quick to speak. They know you, and they just kind of absorb it, and they come alongside, put their arm around you, and just say, I know you're having a hard time. How can I help you? Or here's what I know is true. Okay? That's the ability of a discerning friend who has the aim of making wisdom or living truth out a reality in their life. So what we have to do is we have to learn first before we react to ask the question, why are they speaking this way? Or why are they behaving this way? And consider maybe what it is. If we don't know why, we might just ask, Thoughtful question. You having a hard day? How are you doing? And try to draw out from them maybe what's going on or what's behind their words. All right. Let's look at another proverb. Proverbs 10, verse 19. A few verses later, it says, when there are many words, I'm going to get a bunch of us in trouble. All of us, all of us verbal processes are out there, and I'm one of them, Right? Those of us of many words, (laughs) when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Turn over with me to Proverbs chapter 17. I want you to see this thought. Later in the the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 17. And let's just read verses 27 through 28. (laughs) Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Someone taught me that verse early on because they knew I was going to need it, just to be silent. Um, What's the author of the Proverbs saying here? He's saying, first of all, there's a man of understanding, a man of maturity, let me put it this way, has a cool spirit. I love the, the, the translation here in the ESV. Has a cool spirit about him. Not a hot spirit. He's not hot-tempered. He has a cool and calm spirit about him. And then goes on to make this observation that, boy, even if you are a fool, if you just close your mouth, people are going to think the best of you. But as soon as you open your mouth, that giant billboard lights up. It's like, here's who I am. And I'm exposed before the whole world. Well, someone who speaks a lot, right, has more occasion to be known. For really, are they governed by wisdom or foolishness in their own thinking, in their own heart, their own ambitions, their affections? And so, again, the emphasis is on the heart. But for those of us who might be more characterized by using a lot of words we especially need to take caution here the idea here is that we exercise self-control and so the principle is there's power in words but they must be what stewarded it's not a free-for-all just because you thought it doesn't mean you need to say it as a matter of fact a lot of what we think shouldn't ever be stated And someone who's maturing and is motivated out of a love for God and for others begins to take seriously the stewardship of their words. Is this word that I'm going to speak going to advance God's glory and his purposes? And that's sobering to think about. As I get older and I think about my day, even in the morning, I have a lot of meetings, some are strategy meetings, some are counseling meetings, some are uh, decision-making meetings, and I realize that in every occasion, I'm at risk of violating this principle, especially as one who likes to talk out an idea. I may be too quick to make a rash judgment or express an opinion that's not well-formed. I haven't stopped long enough to gather information or to hear from others and it's become customary in the morning. I like to say I do it every day, but I don't. But I pray through each encounter I know I have scheduled on my calendar. Who am I going to be talking to today? Is it my wife? Is it my kids? Well, I trust it will be. But in addition to that, who else will I be meeting with this today? And I just offer a simple prayer. Spirit, I want to submit to you. I want you to control me. I want you to fill me. I want you to guide my speech give me an economy of words, give me a a restraint in my words, seal my lips to words that should not be spoken that might be harmful or hurtful or unnecessary or untrue, and I'm asking the Spirit of God to hold me accountable in my speech. I like to tell you I succeed every day. I don't, but my point is I'm trying to be cognizant of what we're talking about here to be thoughtful, at least about it, and prayerful, and and, and bring my heart and my speech under the control of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the moment, you you have these unexpected or unavoidable things that occur. It might be a car accident, (laughs) or it might be some other disaster, and it it interrupts your day in such a way that that reaction you're prone to uh, exposes still maybe the lack of faith or fearfulness or anxiety in your own heart. So, it's not that we can anticipate every conversation we're going to have in the course of a day, can we? But we want to be prepared to respond, even in those unexpected moments, hopefully in a spirit controlled fashion. Another question we can ask about stewarding our words is Is it necessary? Is it necessary just because I thought it? Is it necessary to say? Or another question we can ask is Why am I speaking? And boy, when I ask those questions of myself, I'm embarrassed to admit a lot of times I'm trying to impress somebody else. looks like this to me. Someone comes and gives me a piece of information. I want to tell them right away, I already have that information, or I know that, or I thought about it. Instead of just saying, thank you, that's really helpful. What's going on in my heart? Why is it so important to make sure everybody else understands, I have full control, I know what's going on, when that's really not true? It's just my pride speaking in that sense. And if I do that consistently, then what people learn is I'm not very approachable. Right? Or they assume I know everything and don't need to tell me things I don't know. And then I'm really in trouble. Um, My wife can tell you I'm probably most guilty of this. You know, I'm thinking about the kids, what they need to do and so forth, but I forgot or I didn't stop to ask her input on a decision. And I just kind of make an assumption or I make a judgment based on that and act without benefiting from her input. So we can ask ourselves, is it necessary? Why am I speaking? And hopefully it allows me to become a better steward of my words. All right, let's go on. Proverbs 10 still offers us more. It says, the tongue of the righteous is as choice silver, Wouldn't you love someone to say that about your word? The tongue of the righteous is his choice silver. The lips of the righteous feed many. And I just put the principle down this way. There's power in words to bless many. To bless. Boy, when you think about the power of the tongue to bless or to give a blessing, okay, which is a source of life and hope and encouragement, of course there's power in our words to bless As a staff, we've been reading through a book, uh, looking at the Trinity and its relationship to us, and our discussion on Friday was about being an image bearer. And with this thought in mind, I recognize that part of being an image bearer, man created with the ability to bear the image of God, is our ability to communicate. I think you know that, but maybe just consider that for a moment. Dogs don't talk, right, or any other created being. They don't communicate in the way that man was created to communicate. And what does that tell us? As an image bearer, our God himself is one who communicates to the Trinity within the relationship there and to man. Aren't you thankful? And what's the primary way that he actually communicates to us? Well, it's through the Bible that you hold in your hand. Turn with me to a familiar text and consider it in light of what we're talking about. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us why and how God communicates. His primary means of revelation or communication to us is the Scripture. And so verse 16, Paul writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable Hang on to that word profitable for what? Teaching, even reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So what is God's intention in speaking to man through his word? It's to profit us. It's to bless us. It's to benefit us. And and those words might be instruction, They also might be words of correction and reproof. Certainly words for training with what as the aim that we might be matured, that we might be strengthened and built up to experience and to fulfill everything that God wants to do in us for every good work. Wow, if we're made in the image of God with the ability to communicate, do you think about your words in the same way that God thinks about his words with regard to their purpose, their potential, and what they accomplish in the life of another? Are my words for another's profit? And I might need to give some instruction or even a word of reproof or correction or training. But my aim is what? To bless and to benefit the other person. Boy, that's amazing that God enables us to play that role in each other's lives. And apart from our redemption and the transforming work of the Spirit and sanctification and all that, we wouldn't be able to accomplish much that's profitable, would we? But there's hope for us. There's great hope for us when we understand what it means to use our words. As the author of the Proverbs says, that our lips, the lips of the righteous, might feed many for the benefit and blessing of others. So consider yourself in the management of your speech as one who is an image bearer. And may my speech and your speech come more and more to reflect God's purpose and his character. Amen? Well, let's go on. Proverbs 12 tells us, He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness, deceit. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Principle number five, there is the power in words to crush or to heal another spirit. There's power in words to crush or to heal another spirit. Look, we all struggle with sin. We live in the reality of a world that is wholly corrupted by sin. Life's hard. And we all journey through this life, and sometimes we face discouragement, We face struggles. But a word offered by a brother or sister in Christ has the ability either to just continue to increase the burden and the crushing weight of sin or to guide us towards hope and healing. That's the power of our words. Note the context here is speaking about truth or a lie. And as I thought about maybe one practical application of this, And I thought about what temptation I might face that could be crushing to somebody else is when somebody addresses a weakness or a fault, and my response is maybe quick to lie or if not directly lie, it might be to misdirect or to shift the blame or to speak a half-truth or to cover up or even to deny or maybe just not welcoming or inviting correction or someone just to speak what the reality is to me. I might find myself guilty of crushing the other person, the person who came to me in faith to try to do a service to me, to bless me and make it profitable to me, to help me, and I respond with some kind of deflection, justification. What happens in that person's own spirit and their soul? I just made it harder for them to approach me. Instead of welcoming that or inviting that if their aim is to help me and bless me. So sometimes our speech in that way can even crush the spirit of someone who's intending to do us good. You know, if someone ever approaches you uh, with the intention to help you and, and has the faith and courage to come and to confront you, whether they're gentle in spirit like we're instructed to do or they're just maybe a little rash or harsh, but they're still doing it with, intention to be helpful, I can help them by saying thank you and receiving that word of instruction or correction or even reproof and making it safe for them to approach me. And that can be healing to their spirit. There's all kinds of applications. I'm just sharing one with you for me that I want to be aware of. Let's go on. Proverbs 18 provides for us another principle, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it eat of its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue? Wow, this is pretty serious. The principle here is there's power in words to produce a legacy. You know, last week, Harry had the permission to share some very wounding words that were Communicate to Karen, his wife, as a young girl. If you weren't here, he shared the story of how she was in a competition at school as a, uh, a piano performance up against a, what do you say, a breakdancer. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Um, and the response of the crowd who loved the breakdancer, you know, in response to her performance, which, you know, required a lot of preparation and, and study and for her, was even something she loved to do, and, and she was stepping out encouraged to perform before her peers. And in contrast to the breakdancer, they wanted to win the competition, they booed her and just offered words that were really unnecessary and really sinful and very harmful. And Harry went on to say that Karen carried with her then, through her childhood and into adulthood, this idea that her love for music and love for playing the piano is not something that even was safe to do that might be met with criticism or hostility and had to work through that and to trust the Lord to use that gift. Um, As we heard that example, I don't know about you, but I had a lot go through my own mind of words spoken to me and some more serious than others. But I remember as a a second grader, we're getting ready for our school uh, Christmas uh, concert and you know, they huddled us together, and the school teacher got us around her on the piano, and she wanted each of us to sing a part. And when she got to me, um, she was like, well, we're just going to have you mouth the words. And I was excited to sing in the Christmas concert, but in front of all my peers, she basically said, there's no hope for you, you can't sing. Now, I'm not saying that I've had to go through years of counseling over that. <laughs> but you know what? I've never forgotten that. And all through high school... When there are opportunities to be in performances, I always had to kind of overcome that idea. When I got to college, uh, believe it or not, I even took voice lessons, and um, all of my friends, for whatever reason, were surrounded with music majors, including my roommates. And I went up against one in an audition to be a part of a men's quartet, and I lost against my roommate. I today understand the capacity of my voice. I love to sing. Okay, I'm not a soloist. But I learned to enjoy using that gifts and set aside those hurtful words to me that really kind of limited me for many years, even at church. Just find the freedom to sing with joy and boldness. I don't know what you've heard in your past. Obviously, there's much more serious examples that can wound. But they can produce a legacy for good or a legacy that really causes people to live in doubt and fear. And while we don't want to live as victims of our past, we want to be honest and work through that to set our faith in the Lord. But we can't, we don't only just produce a negative legacy sometimes, we can produce a life-giving legacy by speaking words that encourage and build up and to help somebody who might be struggling and say, you know what, you work really hard and I think there's great potential. Now, you don't want to be dishonest, that's flattery. But you want to speak right? A word that's well-suited for the moment, that ministers to the heart, okay? And doesn't cause people to begin to uh, create an identity uh, in their own thinking or mind that begins to hinder them uh, in ways that are unnecessary. And so we can leave a legacy of death with others, friends, children, because we were quick and harsh to speak in a fashion that was not thoughtful. Or we can Speak words of life. And so the idea of death here is to kill hope in somebody's heart or to speak life, which is to to inspire hope in their heart. Well, let me um, just make a few observations here. We're going to get to the practical application. I gave you some additional passages, and uh, I mentioned these two words, two biblical words, encourage and edify. Now, I admit there's a typo here. It shows a colon after each word. What it should show is those two words and a set of verses. So the set of verses um, includes both ideas that you would find. Okay, So I apologize, it's not as clear. But if you read these verses, and I give them to you just to meditate on throughout this week, you'll find in them these rich and wonderful uh, principles, in addition to what we've looked at in, in the book of Proverbs, that talk about encouraging or edifying one another. And what these two words mean in Scripture, the word encourage, periklesis, uh, is a compound word that means to come along someone's side and to call out, or it's a calling to one's aid. The definition I like about the word encourage in Scripture is to set courage in the heart. That's the power of our words, is to remind somebody about the character of God when they're tempted to doubt it in life's circumstances. And not by speaking platitudes, but it's coming on so I say, I know what it's like to doubt and struggle. You're going to be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. okay? But I just want you to know, we have a God who's promised to be a faithful provider. Anchor in that truth, as Harry likes to say. Okay? Anchor in that truth. And let that speak to your heart in this moment of anxiety and, and fear. So we speak truth, we set courage in the heart by reminding them of the promises and the character of God in that moment. The second word that we find in scripture is edify, ecodomeo, compound word as well, and it speaks of building a home. or it's the idea of the act of building up, of course, the opposite of this, and we can see in the principles we've already talked about, is to what? To tear down. So do your words actually build up somebody spiritually, or do they tear them down? The way you might think about this word is someone who is committed to being a minister of edification to others is to strengthen or reinforce someone in a spiritual fashion. Now, I didn't write it down for you, but I'm going to add a third word here. There's a third biblical word related to our speech, and that word is exhort. Exhort. It means to admonish or warn or correct. And we understand that this is a loving thing that we are to do. Many of us have been encouraged by looking at the text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14. And that text is helpful for us because it demonstrates somebody who's exercising discernment and not reacting but responding to the other person in their life. And sometimes that person needs to be exhorted, it says. They need to be warned they're in danger. And the most loving thing to do is to say, You're in danger spiritually. And I, I want to call out to you as a friend. And when we do that, we want to have in mind texts like Galatians 6 1. It tells us that if you go to a brother who's in sin, how, in what spirit do you go? Spirit of gentleness, right? Or Matthew chapter 18, even if we're talking about going through the process of church discipline, what's the aim there? Is it punitive? No, it says to win a brother. That's a loving thing to do. So you go and you point out a sin if you're warning them or correcting them. But just like we saw God's intention in his word is to be profitable, our intention needs to be the same good. It's for their good. And I've had to learn here, sometimes it's easy to confront somebody else and feel justified in it, where I'm not most interested in their good and spiritual progress, I just want them to stop sinning against me. And I've got all the verses that tell me I have permission to go and to let them know they need to knock it off, okay? And we don't want to use our words or the word of God as weapons for personal benefit. We want to always be seeking the other's good in that. And so are we people who will set courage or seek to strengthen or reinforce or even, when necessary, to warn with the intention of the benefit of the one we're speaking to. Well, this is a high standard, isn't it? So let's talk in the moments we have left if you turn the page over. And what are some of the practical ways we can try to respond to these principles? Well, first of all, we need to be aware and cultivate an awareness of who needs to be encouraged and edified. I gave you some examples. Those who are attempting to overcome sin, right? We can set courage, and we can seek to build them up and possibly even warn in gentleness. Those who are being persecuted, those who are experiencing a crisis, those who've lost sight of the promised victory, they're just discouraged. Maybe those who are young, and they see how far short they fall from a standard of maturity in the faith. Or maybe just our children. Those who are in leadership over us also, boy, when you're in leadership, you understand you're open game for people to criticize. And all of your failures and your weaknesses just are constantly on display. It's nice to have somebody who comes alongside and says, listen, I'm with you, okay? I'm committed to working with you. And even if they have to speak a word of, of helpful, like, but you came across a little harsh in the meeting, but there's a reminder that I'm with you, I'm praying for you. Sometimes we forget to realize our leaders need to be encouraged as well. And kids, if you're here, a word to your parents of just appreciation and gratitude and encouragement would go a long way as they persevere in their duty to love and to raise you. Or maybe just those who are demonstrating faithfulness. It's so easy, isn't it, to just take for granted the ones who don't need to be addressed. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. And that's probably the easiest person that I fail to encourage sometimes. I put an example down here. When we think about doing this in our own homes with our own kids, children need to be affirmed, not only corrected or disciplined, in a sense. If they're doing that chore or they're attempting to do that chore without being reminded or some other expression of just maybe a kindness towards their sibling when their sibling is being difficult or whatever it might be, hey, I see that. I appreciate that. Okay, I know that was a choice that you're making to do what's pleasing to the Lord. John MacArthur, if you read his book on fulfill family or any book on parenting, he always makes the point that one of the main responsibilities of a parent is to encourage their kids. And we need that reminder because it's so easy to point to all their faults and weaknesses. So I write here, the ministry of encouragement and edification requires reflection and observation. We've got to slow down and think about who's around us. We've got to think about these people in these categories and the opportunity we have to bless them, right? To, to speak in such a way that we become instruments of the Lord in their lives. One way that you can think about this is even in your own personal prayer life, we collect needs of others, don't we? And we take them before the Lord. Hopefully we tried to do that. But have you ever realized praying for them is wonderful? But that person you're praying for also needs a word of encouragement or edification. And so maybe don't only pray for them, but let them know that you are praying for them. And I love it when I get a text that says, I just want you to know I'm praying for you today. I don't know the specifics of what you're going on. I kind of generally know what what you're responsible for in life. I just want you to know I prayed for you. And I love it when they're even more specific. Here's what I prayed for you. And so one of the ways that you can encourage and help edify people is not just say, I will pray for you, or that I did pray for you, but tell them specifically what you're praying for. And that will aid them in their heart. Well, here's some practical steps you can see. What to communicate, certainly words of Scripture. Or how about words of others? Have you ever heard somebody else acknowledge how somebody else served them or blessed them? I've tried to do this. I'm not great at it. But um, when I hear somebody else bless or, or comment on somebody else being a blessing, I hope and I look for the opportunity to tell that person, here's what I heard about you. Okay. Words of blessing, words of personal impact. Hey, I want you to know this is what you mean to me. This is how God's used you in my life. Okay. And certainly words of hope when they're in despair. How to communicate with sincerity, okay, not flattery. With grace without sarcasm, <laughs> without manipulation, and I just wrote in my notes here, saying the right thing but seeking again something for myself, okay? I'm trying to manipulate them to think more highly of me. Means of communicating, verbally, <laughs> that's obvious, face-to-face, uh, we need to do that. Maybe giving somebody a phone call. I put down here texting, I want to read this to you. So. My brothers and sister and their spouses are on a group text with my mom, and I got this on Friday, no, yesterday. Here's what my mom writes. She knows, I know these are challenging times for us all. This was part of my scripture reading this morning, Lamentations 3, 22 through 25. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. And she signs off by saying, Have an encouraging day and keep your eyes on Jesus. He has his loving eyes on you. Smiley face, heart. (laughs) That's from my mom. And my mom's been a widow for 25 years. And it's been a joy to watch her pursue people and learn to pursue people. Growing up, I recognized she was kind of a fearful person and kind of insecure. And now God's using her to minister, not just to my brothers and I but, and sisters, but to others. And I thought that was a great example of a well-sent text with the intention of encouraging or building up. How about recovering the art of personal note writing, right? Have you ever gotten a handwritten note from somebody? Wow, they slowed down and took the time to do that. There's other means of communicating. These are some to consider building into your life couple thoughts, when to communicate before there's awareness of a need. Don't wait for a crisis is what I mean by that. If you only respond to people who are in crisis all the time, um, you want to get ahead of that, okay? Be proactive. Uh, How about to communicate not just privately but in the presence of others? If you're working with your kids or maybe you're at uh, work with a team of people and just if somebody's just been faithful and done what's right, just say, hey, I want to say a shout-out to that person. I acknowledge, and I want everybody else to hear, I acknowledge that. Because it helps everybody pay attention and acknowledge what that person is doing. And so in the presence of others, certainly do it in the moment, a timely word. You know, don't wait three weeks, uh, but just speak in the moment. And then this thought, after an immediate crisis, let's say you've had a conflict, maybe a difficult conversation, you've worked through that. It's that very next conversation that has such value that you communicate, I'm not going anywhere as your friend. Yeah, we had some troubled waters. We had to kind of work through some things, but I'm just telling you, I'm here, and I love you. We're so afraid that the conflict is going to make us disposable in relationship. And when somebody comes to you and says, I'm not going anywhere, you don't have to be perfect. I'm in it for the long haul. That is a gift. Amen? Well, last thought on this page of paper is considering the effect of corporate and personal prayer. When we pray corporately, we should pray for others, expressing gratitude and thanksgiving for them, encouraging those who hear us pray. pray. When we hear the prayers of others, it should lead us to greater sympathy and presents us with an opportunity to pursue or to encourage and build up. If you hear somebody praying publicly and, and something comes out, make a note to seek that person out and speak to them. Also, the value of corporate prayer is it prevents us from building up resentment or misjudging somebody. Have you ever had thoughts about somebody that you just think are a knucklehead or or you just don't like or for whatever reason? And then you hear them pray and you're like, oh, they love Jesus too. Hmm. <laughs> Not criticize, but to... Be more thoughtful in our words about them. Well, certainly, we want to be like the Holy Spirit who intercedes and comforts us, knowing our needs with great intimacy. And then we can be intercessors and comforters when we consider others' needs. And so, our words, not just to them, but our words to God, can play an active work of encouragement and edification. Well, there's more that could be said and questions to ask ourselves, but I hope this has been helpful to you to just kind of get under the hood a little bit and really think about this wonderful privilege of being made in the image of God to use our speech, sanctified, informed by a heart that's under His submission and His authority, to play a role, unlike the world, that only believers can play, and that is to bless, to encourage, and to build up. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, this work cannot be done in our own strength. There is no doubt about that. And even the accountability of speaking these things publicly, for me and for any of us who respond, is a high standard we recognize. And yet we trust in your promise that you will perfect us and you will accomplish your good in us. And so we want to offer ourselves as instruments to you so that you might use us to be your means of conveying truth and grace and love to those in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you.